Kia ora tātou. So, I want to set our time together in a little bit of a darker context. Uh, one provided by Colin McCann, actually. So this is Colin McCann's painting, Storm Warning, which you can see up on the screen. And in case you can't read it, the words come directly uh, from what was set out in our Timothy reading today, when Paul uh, writes his epistle to Timothy, exhorting Timothy to do the right thing, one of the pastoral letters. Um, and the first part of it you can see here, and the words are, you must face the fact. The final age of this world is to be a time of troubles. Men will love nothing but money and self. They will be arrogant, boastful, and abusive, with no respect for parents, no gratitude, no piety, no natural affections. They will be implacable in their hatreds. Paul to Timothy. So storm warning, this painting, was given to Victoria University of Wellington, Te Heringa Waka, by the artist in 1981. And it was sold by the university in 1999 uh, with considerable controversy. I remember this myself, and there'll be a number of people here who will remember this, this particular controversy. And of course, this painting is now in private hands, uh, despite the fact that Colin McCann had specifically said that he wanted this, public, this, this painting to remain uh, in the public estate, so to speak. But I wouldn't dare to criticise my employer, so I'm going to move on. <laughs> so this is a work from the end of Colin McCann's own working life, and it's, as you can see, somewhat apocalyptic. It's a big, furious banner, black and burning red. And I imagine, you know, if you're faced with it, it would be a little bit terrifying. An art critic by the name of Justin Patton states this about this painting, a vision at full heat is what we get in storm warning. And although darkness is its subject, though it is dark, its existence, the fact that McCann made it is the most important thing to recognise. It is in its vibrant anger, a paradoxically affirming act of painting, or perhaps one might say of creation. So there is an apocalyptic warning in our gospel reading to do to today, as um, we've heard, and we'll talk about that shortly. So this is probably a painting for our times, if not for all times. And what do we do in the face of the kind of what feels like a tide of negative news at the moment? Well, it's been like this for a while. I mean, I was watching, I, 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 I was saying to the, um, the nine o'clock service, you know, I'm quite a funny person in many ways. I'm fairly optimistic. But I tell you, when you're faced with, you know, World War Three kinds of headings on the news and but not just that, but climate doom and all the kind of stuff. And I think we've been saying this for a while now. Um, you know, those, those things and fractured relationships and all the things that seem to be so prevalent in our discourse, at least. Um, what do we do? Well, our gospel reading tells us we have prayer. Now, for most of my life, I have not been a very good prayer I may have said this in past sermons. I've been a bit of a duty prayer, to be fair. Okay, now is the allotted prayer time. Let's get it over with. Or in moments of trial and urgent trouble. Occasional thanksgiving if there's a nice sunset or a puppy. I've only really learned to pray since becoming ordained, which is a worry for the standard setting in our ordination process. <laughs> um, 
so to be honest, uh, my growth of a prayer discipline has been actually pretty recent. So there is prayer life, and then for me there is also karakia. Um, and I regret to tell you I've not been particularly good at learning or holding karakia Māori either. And perhaps that's just as well, um, because karakia are not to be taken lightly. And I understand that many karakia Māori are to be understood differently to petitionary prayer, or enoi is the word that, um, that I often use, to distinguish from um, different types of Māori prayer. I remember at the beginning of, I think it was this year, it might have been last year, because my sense of time is so whack right now, it could have been last year, um, but we did some praying, um, a number of us from the chaplaincy, through one of the halls, of one of the bigger halls. And uh, so there was Mel, Mackenzie and Jess. I don't know why I have to say Mackenzie. We all know who Mel is. But anyway, Mel and Jess and me and Dr. Mike Ross from Takawa Maui, Maori Studies. Uh, we met together and we kind of went and did different wings um, of this particular hall. And Mike and I job shared together. And what we'd do is we'd go on to a level of this particular hall, of this wing of the hall, and I would do uh, an enoi, a petitionary prayer, um, free form in Māori, and then Mike would come in with a karakia of a set form, the same words said in the same way, and then I would recommence after that with my own enoi. And at the end of that time, he said to me, gosh, your job's a lot harder than mine. All I have to do is memorise memorize it and get it right but you have to be spontaneous when you're praying you have to think about it more for words to that effect and indeed karakia maori can and do invoke god and they can and do invoke atua maori or they might operate more as a way of kind of bringing people together in the now affirming a common enterprise we see that often in the use of karakia to open meetings and things like that to settle emotions for example um, traditional karakia uh, need to be correct in form and in content. And not all such karakia invoke a spiritual entity, but karakia are inevitably spiritual in some way. To give you an example, in 1937, my husband was telling me about this yesterday, and I said, oh, I'm going to use this. In 1937, uh, the, there was a commissioning of the building of a great waka, a great canoe, Ngatuki Matafaugua, and was commissioned for the, uh, was coming up to the first centenary in 1940 of the signing of Te Tiriti o Waitangi. So these massive logs were felled. The work was supervised by Master Carver Piripoitapu, and this was the first major waka constructed in the north for over 100 years. So this was a big deal. Well, when it came to the launch, this enormous and amazing waka, which you can see today, uh, well, it wouldn't budge. She was supposed to be pushed along on rollers and there was a winch in place and wire ropes and people doing all they could to kind of push and get this waka moving uh, to get it down to the water, but no movement. So the old people at the time had a hui. Now, Te Puya was there, the granddaughter of Pūtatau Te Whero Whero, uh, the second Māori king, uh, Te Puya Herangi. And, uh, of course, Waikato had been involved in the construction of the waka, so hence their involvement in the, in, the, in the launching of it. And she could see this situation arising and she said, well, never mind the winch. That's what's holding it back. We'll do it the Māori way. In other words, to call on the divine realm in the right way. 
So the Tohunga Pizza Hipiri climbed up onto the top of the waka, did a karakia in the right form and in the right way. He jumped back and forth on the waka with his taiaha. Some kuia then began to cut another waka. People began to push and lo, it moved easily. The karakia, it was understood, had done its job and successfully invoked divine intercession, the favour of that realm. So in traditional karakia context, whether or not it's petitionary, a failure, uh, if there's a result that doesn't happen or there's a failure of the desired result, um, we might then question, well, okay, was the karakia delivered in the right way? Were there hapa, were there mistakes? Uh, if the form had been better, maybe the desired outcome might have occurred. It's not dissimilar to the kinds of questions we sometimes ask ourselves in the more expressly Christian prayer context. When we feel our prayers are not being answered, we might cast blame for apparent failure on our own shoulders for a lack of sufficient faith or a lack of worthiness or simply praying the right things. Maybe you didn't pray the right prayer that was in keeping enough with God's purpose. Um, if the desired content had been included in all the right spirit or more worthiness, maybe there might be a better outcome. Maybe that would have occurred. And these are all versions of what Tim referred to back in June when he preached about prayer. He referred to this as praying with gravel back then, if you might recall. And he was quoting Welsh poet Arius Thomas. And I think we've got a slide, Christian. Yeah, there we go. Um, I thought it'd be useful for us to see the words. Prayers like gravel flung at the sky's window, hoping to attract the loved one's, loved one's attention. But without visible prats to let down for the believer to climb up, to what purpose open the casement? I would have refrained long since, but that peering once through my locked fingers, I thought I detected the movement of a curtain. Quite evocative, I think. Well, Jesus gives us good news about prayer in today's reading. Um, do we want to just go forward a bit again? Oh, no, never mind. <laughs> um, actually, speaking to my own situation, it gives me good news and it invites me into an even deeper prayer relationship because this is exactly what we need to be able to do to join with God in the building of the kingdom. We see this in how Luke arranges his gospel with today's reading coming straight after Jesus has been preparing people for the kingdom. And, you know, there's 51 mentions, I think, of the kingdom of God in Luke alone. Um, and uh, Jesus is also referring to the future arrival of the Son of Man. And when asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom is coming, Jesus says the coming of the kingdom is not something that can be observed, nor will the people say, oh, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. So with that directly in mind, Luke then moves us into Jesus' telling of, the, of two parables directly about prayer. One that we've heard, the first one is uh, what we've heard today. It features an excellent, persistent, don't take no for an answer, woman, a widow. A widow is seeking justice against somebody who has done her wrong. Jesus describes this woman in her continual and dogged search for justice and for the right thing to happen. And she goes to a judge, not just once, but again and again and again. 
She has the confidence and the standing perhaps to petition the judge on her own merits. And Jesus gives her a voice in this parable. He has her say, grant me justice against my adversary. Now, of course, the, ju the judge that she ends up with is not a good judge, not a judge that cares about people at all, not a judge that pays any attention to God whatsoever. Eventually, after her continual petitions, the judge gives her the justice she desires, not because to do so was right, not because to do so was ethically correct, or even in keeping with the law, but literally because the Greek tells us that the unrighteous judge was sick of, him bother of her bothering him and afraid that she would punch him under the eye. That's hupo pisdain, piadain, piadain, if I'm reading my Greek letters correctly. So he gives in <laughs> and she gets what she has petitioned for. And then Jesus says she got a vindication from an unrighteous judge and he extrapolates out from that how much more will God bring the justice that is needed to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night. So the picture Jesus creates here is one of continual prayer. Jesus points us to the character of God. God is not the unjust judge. God is not the human judge who only gives in after he's been hassled enough. God is the justice bringer, the polar opposite of the judge in the parable. As Eugene Peterson says, kingdom business is urgent business. Jesus tells us this all the time, dozens of times in Luke, as I mentioned before. He tells us about the now but not yet kingdom. And here we are told that one of the ways in which to engage in the new creation that this kingdom brings in is in prayer, continual prayer, urgent prayer. This is not a reason to pray for the thing you want a million times, but to continually cry out to God. And this is what I'm trying to develop in my own prayer life, this continual crying out, this continual prayer relationship, one that develops um, along with me one that's not concerned so much with correctness and form or worthiness and content or worthiness of myself, uh, one that's not performed for other people to listen to, a, a connection that's not dependent on my feelings but is an expression of my faithfulness to God and him to me. And our reading from Jeremiah today alludes to this deep and knowing connection as well. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And it puts me in mind too of um, my own role in this. It puts me in mind of uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He talks about becoming little Christs. Um, he talks about uh, kind of faking it till you make it, right? The idea that you put on, you put on the garment, you put on the face, and eventually uh, you become what it is that you're pretending to be or mimicking, um, that this is a good kind of pretense, not the bad kind of pretense, but the good kind of pretense. This entering into sonship, as, um, as C.S. Lewis in 1952 puts it. Because what I've done for most of my life as a Christian is carry around a bucket. Eugene Peterson, again, uses the image of a bucket of water 
as an expression of our usual kind of prayer life, or at least my usual kind of prayer life. The bucket is full, but there's a kind of leak somewhere. The sun is hot, and by the time you get home, the water is gone and the bucket is bone dry. Our prayers, our karakia, our petitions, our laments, our thanksgiving, our acclamation of God's goodness have got to be more than a dry bucket. And let me also be clear, Jesus does issue an apocalyptic warning, a storm warning to be precise, a very short one, more effective maybe than that which is set out in 2 Timothy, with or without Colin McCann. The very last line of the parable is this, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on earth? And in the Greek, it's a, there's the definite article, not faith, but the faith. Will he find the faith on earth? That's all, very short, but it's enough. In view of all Jesus had said prior about prayer, clearly continual prayer matters. Can we pray with joy? Can we pray with brokenheartedness? Can we pray with boredom, with resignation, with anger, despair, and all of these things? Or one day will our prayers be gone like the water from a dry bucket on a hot day? If prayer feels like that to us, maybe we need to enter into that invitation to recreate, to enter into the creation of our prayers anew. And maybe that can be one way in which we can join with God in creating this kingdom on earth. So I'm going to just leave you with that and perhaps if we could take a minute or two to reflect before we enter into prayers of our own today. What, what, was our, what, what are our prayers like? Are we gravel praying? Are we bucket praying? Are we um, creative, trying to create anew this, um, to join in that act of creation with our God? What is it that we're praying for? What is it we really want to bring into fruition? Naraira e te iwi. Kanuita mihi kia koutou. Kia ora tātou.